God reigns, so his people should rejoice. Today and, and to get to preach um, Psalm 97. It's such a wonderful opportunity. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. We'll, we'll turn there in a moment. Or we say in English that nations which are long divided, they must unite. And nations that are long united must divide. That's how the famous uh, Chinese novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, how it, how it begins. This novel, it deals with, and this, this idea, it deals with how kings' authorities, how they wax and they wane, just as the moon waxes and wanes, here today and gone in a few weeks, we don't see it. How countries ebb and flow, just as the tide ebbs and flows at the, at the beach. History has shown this to generally be true. Great kingdoms, they've come. Great kingdoms have gone. Nations one day rise to power. A few years later, they, they fall. After a period of corruption or poor leadership sets in or sometimes just another strong leader from another country rises up. And this strong country is, is no longer so strong anymore. It's been humbled. It's been split up even at times. It's true of every kingdom all over the world throughout all of history. Everyone that is except for one kingdom, except for God's kingdom. And that's because God has always been, he currently is, and he always will be king over his eternal kingdom. And as we look at Psalm 97, we'll see that God reminds his people that he reigns as king over all, and that he always will eternally reign as king over all. This psalm, it's the one that was written during a time that was very difficult for the people of Israel. They'd been conquered by Babylon in close to 600 BC, and they spent around 70 years uh, without a king, without a country, living in foreign nations, often living as slaves in, in really bad conditions. And that time when this psalm was written of terrible struggles for the people of Israel it caused many of the Israelites to ask questions of their God, to ask about their God. Questions like, is their God still there? The God of their forefathers, is he still here? If he is still here, did he break his covenant with them? Does he no longer keep that promise? You see, God had promised Israel that Israel would be his treasured possession, that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But their current situation in exile, it made it seem like these things weren't true. Like God wasn't able or wasn't making them happen. They had heard stories of their ancestors being led out of slavery in Egypt by God. They had heard stories that he led them into the promised land and did many miraculous things to make them his people, to clearly show his power to the world and to all around. However, at this time, as Israel is exiled in Babylon, the temple had been destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was no more. There was no king over Israel. 
Israel had been decimated in battle. The Israelites had been taken into captivity. So we can understand why they would doubt, why they would question if God was still there or if he had broken uh, or was going to break the covenant that he had made with them. It's reasonable for them to wonder if this God who was great and was mighty, has he lost his place as king of all? Is he no longer king in this way? Maybe there had been some greater God, some greater power who came along. Maybe even one of the pagan gods of the Babylonian people who they were surrounded by. Maybe that was the new king over all things. Maybe they had overthrown God. Maybe the Israelite lost to Babylon. Maybe it marked the end of the greatness of God. The greatness of, of this God who was reigning and who had said that the Israelite people were his Maybe, maybe it was no more. Maybe this God was no longer in control. Today, many of us, we can also wonder similar things. We can also wonder, this God that we read about in the Bible, is he still here today? Is he still around? Does he still do what we see him do in the Bible? The Bible was written a long time ago. Do we really believe that he's still God today? Today, our text, it seems, or it seeks to provide very clear answer to these questions that the Israelites, or even us, might have. And that answer that we see in Psalm 97 is a resounding affirmation that God still reigns, and that he always will reign forever. And this answers our questions for today as well, our questions in this century, in, in this life. The God of Israel, he reigns today, he will reign tomorrow, and he will reign forever. And so the psalmist, as he's writing to the Israelites who are wondering these questions in exile, he answers these questions and he speaks to us as well. Teaches us that this God, our God, is great and mighty. And he will reign always over all things. He will bring shame to his enemies, all of those who refuse to worship him. And he will preserve and bring rejoicing to those who trust in his name. Before we read Psalm 97 together, please pray with me. Lord, as we open your word today, as we look at Psalm 97, I pray that you would use the words uh, that, that have been written on a page, that I'd be able to explain them clearly, that I would be able to teach faithfully. Lord, and I pray that the hearts and, and minds that are here listening, Lord, that each and every one would be softened to your truth. Lord, that each person, as they hear would be touched by your word and be changed by your word. Lord, you tell us that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and that it is effective. So we pray that it would be so today as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and you flip there or if you're on your phone or something like that, you can open to Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Who make their boasts in worthless idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice, 
because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the, for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Well, the main idea of this psalm is that God reigns, so his people should rejoice. And we'll look at this in four points today. The first one, from verses 1 through 6, that God's reign is revealed. God's reign is revealed. The second point in verse 7, eternal shame awaits those who ignore God's reign. Eternal shame awaits those who ignore God's reign. Point three, eternal rejoicing is the reward in God's kingdom. Eternal rejoicing is the reward in God's kingdom. That'll be verses eight and nine. And then point four will be that God's reign means his people should rejoice. God's reign means his people should rejoice in verses 10 through 12. Well, the psalmist is very clear at the beginning of this psalm. He starts in verse 1. He says, the Lord reigns. He himself is confident that God is still in control. In spite of Israel's current situation, he's, he proclaims, the Lord reigns. God reigns. And he's also quick to state that it's a good thing that God reigns. For he says, let the earth rejoice, but the many coastlands be glad. The earth, the many coastlands, that refers to the fact that God reigns over all places. Over all. He's not only in control of one or two places, but everything. The whole earth. Therefore, no matter where the Israelites might be at this time, or no matter where we are at this time, there's reason to rejoice that God reigns. To the Israelites, though, they're, they're currently separated from Jerusalem. God's temple has been destroyed. They have no king. But no matter where they are, God reigns. God being surrounded in clouds and thick darkness, as we see continuing on, that would have caused the Israelites to recall God's revelation to them at Mount Sinai. But that's the way that God came down on the mountain. He covenanted with them there that if the Israelite people would obey his commands, he would make them a holy nation. He would make them a kingdom of priests. God had revealed his power and his authority and his reign to the Israelites all throughout history as he had helped them escape from slavery, helped them win many amazing military victories, and, and worked many other miracles. God had shown that he can uphold his end of the covenant that he made with Israel. But in a covenant, there's two parties involved. So God is involved and the Israelites are involved. God clearly can uphold his side. But what about the Israelites? The Israelites failed utterly failed to uphold their side of this covenant. During the invasion of Canaan, after they had left Egypt, they often failed to do as God told them. They didn't destroy the gods and the idols of the people who were already living there. They intermarried with the people who were of, who the, with the Canaanites. And ultimately, th this behavior, not destroying the idols, intermarrying with the locals, it ultimately led to many of the Israelites turning away from God, forsaking him, worshiping other false gods 
who were the gods of these people who they didn't uh, destroy. So there are questions about if God will uphold his promises, especially in the Israelite mind, questions for them because they had failed. Since we failed, will God also break this covenant? The psalmist records that righteousness and justice, that they're the foundation of God's throne. The one who sits on the throne is in control. He's a king. This is a, a clear image to us. God then truly is king of all. He's truly righteous and just. Righteousness, it means that God is perfect, that he can't accept the presence of imperfection or the presence of unrighteousness. So he must judge what is unrighteous and he must be separated from it. Justice then goes hand in hand with righteousness. It's the judgment of right and wrong. Justice, it's just when wrong gets punished. It's just when good is rewarded. And God, as a righteous and just God, punishes all impurity. And he punishes it rightly. Notice also that God's reign is something to fear. When the Lord appears at Mount Sinai, he descended upon the mountain in fire. The psalmist records that fire is going before God and burning up all his adversaries all around him. Fire is this incredible thing. It's a scary thing. It can destroy, it can even kill. But it also purifies, and it can be very helpful as well. Those who were God's people, there was nothing to worry about with this fire that was destroying God's adversaries. God was a pillar of fire before the Israelites as he led them through the wilderness at night. He descended on Mount Sinai with fire. But in these cases, the Israelites, they weren't harmed by this fire. The fire, though, is directed at the Lord's adversaries, not at the Lord's people. This is a, a somewhat difficult truth for some of us to accept, though. If you're here and you don't believe in Christ as your Lord or Savior, and you're rejecting the kingship of God. You are his adversary. You will be eternally separated from God in hell and be eternally punished. Remember, God's, God is just. He is righteous. He cannot and he will not ignore sin. Without faith in Christ, sin must be paid for. Your sin through your own death and your own eternal separation from God. That's true for all who don't recognize and trust who God is. It's a difficult truth, especially as many of us have family and friends. If it's not ourselves, we have family and friends who fit into this category. Sin is a serious thing. Being labeled, being God's adversary, is a serious thing. It has eternal consequences. And in verse 4, the psalmist, he continues, he says that, God's lightings, they're lighting up the world. Light in the Bible, it's almost always a symbol for people understanding who God is, understanding about him. Here, this imagery that lightings are lighting up the world, it's an image of, of God's power. And the power of an amazing event like lightning, God's lightning bolt, we see God's power. As light pierces into the darkness, everything is revealed. God's power is the same way. It's all-encompassing. As he reveals his power, it causes the earth, meaning all the earth as we see here, to tremble because of his great power. 
His power is great, and us as humans, all we can do is tremble at his power. Verse 5 then explains that even nature can be moved by God as he reigns over it. This phrase is also used in Judges as Deborah and Barak. They praise God for the way in which he delivered the Israelites from slavery. Also, it's used in Nahum as God's coming wrath against Nineveh is prophesied. In both instances, we see mountains are described as shaking or melting before God in the same way that the psalmist explains it. And then in verse 6, notice that the heavens, this is a reference to the sky above, proclaims God's righteousness, the response to the proclamation of God's righteousness. All the people see his glory. Not only has God revealed himself to Israel, but all people see his glory. Through his power and his workings, all see his glory. Notice how often in this psalm we see phrases like all the earth, or the earth, or all the peoples. And also notice that in these verses it's the mountains and the heavens, plural, that, that are referred to. They're all revealing God. This is not a God who only lives on Mount Sinai in some kind of castle, and he's constricted to one place. This is a God who reigns over all things, over all the earth, everywhere. He is a righteous God who sits on his throne as king over the entire earth. He reigns justly over all things. For the Israelites in their current situation, this was excellent news. Living in foreign nations, unsure if their God was still reigning or not, they have this reminder. God still reigns, and he reigns over all. But this is also good news for us, because God reigns over all. And he's revealed himself in many, in many ways through nature, clouds, darkness, fire, lightnings, mountains, and heavens. They all reveal God, and they reveal his power, as the psalmist is pointing to. But God, he also sent Christ to live on earth. God himself, who lived and died and rose again. In Christ's life, God revealed himself to all in a different way. The fact that Christ rose again after he was dead, it's absolutely incredible. It shows that God has power over even death. God is powerful even over death. And so he's revealed, God has revealed that he's king of all. He's revealed this to his people Israel as he, he, he worked in many ways to, to preserve them. But he's also revealed his kingship through nature, through Christ, and through many events even after Christ's death and his resurrection. This God is an eternal God who reigns over all things and always will reign over all things. He has revealed that to us in many ways at many times. We move into point two, the psalmist, in verse seven. He reminds the readers that eternal shame awaits those who ignore God's reign. The Israelites in their exile, we've mentioned, they're wondering, hey, has our king been overthrown? Is it one of these pagan gods that's like the new king? Did God lose his reign because he's no longer powerful? Due to their situation in exile, Many of these Israelites, they would have started to chase after these gods, to worship these false gods, these pagan gods. 
the, the pagan people there in Babylon, they were very religious. They didn't worship God. They didn't worship Yahweh, our God. But they had many false gods and many idols. They were very religious to worship them in very specific ways at specific times. And it would have been tempting to the Israelites to adapt these same methods. The psalmist, he reminds them, though, that there's nothing but shame that waits for those who put their faith and who boast in worthless idols. For they're worthless. They lead to nothing. The idols referencing, they were gods that were made out of wood or made out of gold or other substances that can be found here on earth. People would one day, they might reflect on some kind of element of nature and how important it was to their lives. Maybe like cows, because cows provided food and milk and kept them alive in some ways by their sustenance. And then these people, they would use whatever skill they had in metal or woodworking to make something that resembled a cow. And then they would worship this thing that resembled a cow. However, this cow could be burned up. It could be crushed quickly because it was nothing more than wood or metal that it was made of. It's a fake God, not mighty, not great. It had not created anything. Worship of something like this leads to nothing but shame, as the psalmist reminds. Imagine in 1 Kings being one of the 450 priests who were calling out all day long to Baal, to this false god, even cutting themselves, trying to, to get this god to burn up their sacrifice, only to find out that after all this effort, after trying so hard, even cutting themselves and, and, and bleeding, for Elijah, a prophet of the true God, to have his prayer answered and his sacrifice to be burned up to the point that there was nothing left. That's pretty shameful for the people who were calling out to Baal. Or what about the men who had to physically use their own strength to help their God, Dagon, who had fallen down in worship to the one true God, only to the next morning awake and find out that this false God had fallen down again in worship to the true God. But shame, it's more than just emotions that one feels when, when they do something stupid. It's that, but it's more than that. In a, spiritual, in a spiritual sense, shame, it's an eternal separation from the Lord. To get eternity wrong, truths about eternity wrong, that's shameful. Because eternal death, it leads to eternal separation from God. And it's caused by a rejection of this king of all things, who reigns eternally. If we reject to honor God as king of our lives, as the king of all things, by putting other things before him, by putting our work or our relationships or anything of this world above God, that's shameful. The judgment that we should be concerned with is the judgment not of our boss or of our friends because of our paycheck. Rather, the judgment we need to be concerned with is the judgment of God who sits on his throne. His judgment is eternal. But thankfully, his judgment is also just and it's righteous. And it's not concerned with worldly success. Romans 1 and 2, they show that each one of us 
is guilty of rejecting God as our king. God's eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived, yet we have at times not honored God as God. We have at times not given thanks to him. We have worshipped the creature instead of the creator. For myself, this is a challenging thing as I was preparing for the sermon to think about. To think about how I schedule my days. Sometimes I choose an extra 30 minutes of sleep or an hour of work over spending time with God. In those instances, I've chosen sleep or work as an idol in my life, as more important than spending time with God who deserves my worship and my, my, my praise. I would imagine all of us sitting here, wouldn't imagine, all of us sitting here are guilty of similar things in similar ways. When the Lord reveals some, some sin like this to us, what should we do? When you realize that you've been guilty of committing idol worship, what, what should you do? For it's a shameful thing. It's a rejection of the true God. Well, in those times, we should remember that the psalmist has just reminded us that that's true, that it's worthless to worship an idol who's not God. It leads to shame to reject God as king. And so in times that you recognize this sin, the first thing you should do is confess it. Put yourself at the mercy of the just king. Ultimately, it's his judgment that matters. And we know his judgment is just. Even more than that, we know that he's faithful to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What amazing news that is, that this just and righteous God, he's faithful and just to forgive those who come to him, who put their faith in Christ and confess that they are sinners. It's good news for all of us, for none of us have lived perfect lives. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we must confess our sin. But how? Well, there's a great example. My understanding that most weeks uh, at WSBC, when you come to worship, there's a prayer of confession. What an example that prayer of confession is for each of us, that we should confess our sin prayerfully to God, who's faithful to forgive us. But also, what's the content of those prayers is helpful to us, for it can also help us to know how to confess Specifically, an example might be if you're, you're in this situation of recognizing the sin of idol worship, rejecting God, you might pray something like this, God, I'm a sinner. I confess that recently I've been guilty of making work my idol. I've been unwilling to stop working long enough to spend time with you. I've worshipped my job, my paycheck, as if it could save me when I know that only you are God and only you deserve my worship and only you can save me. And then you can ask that this all-powerful king, that through his Holy Spirit, that he would grow you in righteousness, that he would help you to put off this sin, to put it off as part of your old self, and to instead help you put on your new self in the righteousness of Christ. That you would henceforth recognize that God is king over every part of your life, and that you might continue your prayer in this way. 
God, through the work of your spirit, would you help me to grow that I might continue to see you more and more as the God of all my life? Would you cause me no longer to chase after the foolishness or the foolish things of this world as if they could save my life? And instead, would you cause me to desire to love you more? And after you've said this prayer, through God's strength, work to remove that idol from your life in whatever way might be necessary. Well, after pointing out the shame of those who worship other gods, the psalmist speaks about eternal rejoicing that is the reward for those who are in God's kingdom. In verses 8 and 9, he says that Zion is glad in hearing. Glad in hearing that the heavens are proclaiming from verse 6 that the Lord reigns. They hear this. Zion hears this. And it is glad. The daughters of Judah, the psalmist says, rejoice because of God's judgments. His judgments are just and righteous, so they have reason to rejoice. Zion and the daughters of Judah, their references to Israel as a whole nation. So God's judgments then clearly are good news for Israel. Israel should hear of God's judgment, and they should be glad. Though they have failed, God will not fail in his covenant. And those who are part of Israel, they will continue and will enjoy his judgments. But none of us, I'm pretty certain, are Jewish. So what does that mean for us? We have no claim to the promises of Israel as an earthly nation. So how should we read these verses today? Are they just words on a page that mean nothing? Well, the answer to that is no. They're good news for us as well. This word Zion, it's used also to reference the coming kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem. After Christ returns, the earth passes away, and there will be a new world, a new Jerusalem, a new city. It's God's city. God's eternal kingdom with no suffering, no pain, and eternal rest. All of those who are part of this kingdom, they will no longer be oppressed by worldly kings or worldly suffering like we are today. Zion then is pointing to the world after the second coming of Christ, after God's judgment. That's amazing news for you and for I today. No one has ever been able to uphold the covenant with God. No one has ever lived perfectly and earned God's blessing. No one it is except for Jesus. However, not only did he live perfectly then and uphold this covenant with the Lord, but even in, the, in his perfection, which should have meant eternal life, he died. He willingly died. He died the death that each sinner deserved. And after that, he rose again three days later, in doing so, defeating death. And through the shedding of his perfect blood, he made a way that through faith, anyone can have their sins washed away and can be reconciled to this God who is king over all things, who is just and righteous. We also know that this applies to anyone who believes because of what Paul teaches us about Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ himself, he showed through defeating death that he is king over all. His throne is established. It's truly over everything. As verse 9 says, You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. No matter our lineage then, no matter if we're Israelite or not Israelite, no matter if we're American, Chinese, Singaporean, or some other nationality, because of the death of Christ, you and I, we can become part of God's people. We can be adopted as his sons and daughters. And that makes his judgment good news for you and I as well. Because those who have faith in Christ, they will be judged among the righteous because of Christ's righteousness. After reminding the Israelites and reminding us of God's being king over over his eternal kingdom, the psalmist turns to remind us of the appropriate response to God's being king. It brings us to our fourth point. In verse 10, he calls those who love the Lord, the psalmist does, calls those who love the Lord to hate evil. This command is repeated in other places in Scripture. Proverbs 8.13 tells us that the fear of Lord, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil could be restated to say it's wise to hate evil. Amos, in his prophecy to Israel, he calls God's people to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And Paul, in the New Testament, his letter to the Romans, he says, let love be genuine, abhor or hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. God is righteous and he's just. He hates what is evil. Well, in any kingdom, whether we're talking earthly kingdoms or eternal kingdoms, it's good that a ruler and his people are united in what they want and even in what they hate. Common enemies are a given in a good kingdom, in a united kingdom. When kingdoms have been successful, this has been true. The king and his people, they understand and they desire the same things for their nation. For believers, those who will enter God's eternal kingdom, those who are God's people, this should be true. Because God, our King, hates evil, we also should hate evil. When people have no food because of selfish wars, when crime goes unpunished, when there's corruption in a government, when people are treated unfairly, when women are beaten by men, when unborn babies are killed, when God's name is blasphemed, and many, many more examples that I'm sure each of us could think of. Christians ought to hate things such as these because God does. They are evil. Jesus entered the temple and he found that the house of God had been turned into a place where people were doing crooked business deals. They were cheating each other out of money. He was very upset. Why was he upset? Because this was an evil thing. The difficult thing is, though, that most people today, we can't agree on what is evil and what is good. 
There's no understanding that all of us agree on. That's why it's so great that we have God's word. In his word, he teaches us what is good and what is evil. He teaches us what is right and what is wrong. So we can define good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad. The idea that everyone can determine truth for themselves, it's foolishness according to what scripture teaches. There is only one truth, God's truth. Your truth and mine, they can't differ from that truth. Because all things are subject to God's truth as he reigns over all things righteously and justly. He doesn't overlook any wrong, nor does he forget any good thing, any good work. He defines good and bad, right and wrong, and not a single force in this world, outside of this world, can ever oppose him. Therefore, we need to go to scripture to learn what is just, what is right, what is good. For then we will know what we should hate, because we will then know what is evil. And we will know what we should love, because we will know what is good. Verses 11 and 12, they wrap up this psalm with calls for the righteous and the upright of heart to rejoice and to give thanks. If you're a believer in Christ, this is you. You are righteous. You're righteous not because of your work, but righteous because of the blood of Christ alone. When he returns and when he judges the world, those who believe in him, they will be judged among the righteous and they will enter eternal life. We see in this psalm that the psalmist, he sandwiches this psalm with the same idea at the beginning and the end. In verse 1 and verse 12, we see this idea of rejoicing because God is king. Anytime in scripture we see this kind of sandwiching technique going on, it should scream out to us. That is an important idea. And that's what we see here. Because God is king, there's reason and cause for joy. There's cause for rejoicing of his people. Those who are righteous, they should rejoice and give thanks. Rejoice that your king reigns, that his judgment is just. Rejoice that evil will never overcome him and that you will be saved. Rejoice that you are among the people of Zion who will enter God's eternal rest. But also give thanks. Give thanks that God is gracious, that he loves you, that he made a way that you might become righteous through faith in Christ. Give thanks that he is a good king. Give thanks that he's holy, that he is above all things. And give thanks in all things. In any kingdom, all things can be traced back to their king. Riches or power, even peace, in one way or another, they can, they can be traced back to being caused by decisions or actions of that king. In God's kingdom, this is also true. And so therefore, in all things, we have reason to give thanks to our king. But how do we do that? How do we rejoice? How do we give thanks well, one way we can sing. Most of the songs that you sing on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon, they're songs of praise and rejoicing to this God, to God who's king of all. Take these songs home with you. Use them at home. Sing them throughout the week 
as a way of continuing to rejoice. Another way you can, can rejoice is through prayer. At WSBC, when you worship together, it's also my understanding that you have a prayer of praise. Another great opportunity to learn how to prayer, how to praise God in prayer. Well, to conclude, as we've seen this morning, in Psalm 97, the greatest thing that could ever happen, it has happened. That is that God reigns. That he's a good God who judges justly and righteously, who will preserve his saints and who will deliver the righteous from the hand of the wicked. He will deliver those who made righteous, who, are, who were made righteous through the blood of Christ. He will deliver them into eternal peace and rest with him eternally. Now we can be guaranteed of these because we have seen his power and his might as he reigns as king. He certainly will not fail in his work. Therefore, Christian, you have many reasons to give thanks. You have many reasons to rejoice in each moment as we await God's righteousness, as we await his righteous, just, and eternal judgment. And that should bring rejoicing into each of our lives. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you as the one who is king over all things. Lord, you are creator, sustainer, designer. Lord, you cause all things to happen. You are incredible. We praise you as the one who is above all others and who always and eternally will be this God who reigns over all things. Lord, we also thank you that you have loved us, that you have in compassion looked on us and made a way that even in our sin we might come to you and be made a child of God. Lord, we pray that as we go throughout this week, we would often turn to rejoicing in the, the fact of who you are and the way that you love us. Lord, and we pray that we would constantly turn back to thanks, thanks to you who are deserving Thanks in all things, as you have worked all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.